Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Thiessen. Jeff Elgie is the CEO of Village Media, a growing network of local news sites that run on the Sault Ste. Marie Company's proprietary content management system, including the recently launched The Trillium in Queen's Park. In this episode, LG takes us inside the company's business model, in addition to touching on some hot button issues, including why he's not a fan of Bill C-18, the Online News Act, and how Village Media is very carefully and intentionally testing the integration of generative AI. I'm Jeff LG, I'm the CEO of Village Media. Uh, Village Media is an almost 10-year-old company headquartered in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, that now operates 21 local news sites in Ontario, two online business publications, three community news sites in the U.S., our new provincial Ontario legislature site, the, the Trillium, uh, as well as a couple of other, other sites in our owned and operated network. So it's now a total of 29, soon to be 30 with a new lifestyle publication coming up. And we also are a bit of a technology company. We develop the software that runs our own platform, but I also license that to other publishers, which total now about 50 sites across Canada and the U.S. We are about 145 staff, highly focused, of course, on on local news. So as much as the headquarters are in the Sioux, where we have most of our central operation, like HR and finance and tech and ad operations and creative graphic design, etc. Each of our cities has a local editor and any number of reporters and salespeople in it. And uh, we keep growing. Um, as you probably know, we launched Burlington in November. We acquired a site in Niagara-on-the-Lake in December. We acquired another site in Pelham in January. We, of course, launched the Trillium in February and uh, have have this new lifestyle brand coming up this month. I want to talk about that growth, Jeff, because you started with a single site in 2013. And as you said, you now have 21 community sites in addition to the U.S., co-owned two in Nigeria, the business publications, the national site. Do you want to talk about your scaling process? Because we hear all the time about all of the implosion in the digital content space what has Village Media been doing differently that's allowed you to scale the way you have? Well, I think a few things. One, I always like to say, I use the phrase born digital uh, when I refer to Village. And I think it, it's become a major advantage of ours in that we you know, are, are, are built for the business of digital only local news. So whether that be the technology we build to um, the way we train our salespeople or the products that we develop, the way we run our newsrooms, et cetera, it, it's, it's solely focused on running a digital operation. And, and I think it's a tough business, I, I will say that. And, and so I think any distraction of, of, of a legacy uh, business, typically newspaper, for example, to, to me would make it extremely difficult. So, so I think that's been a huge advantage of ours. We, in the early days, have some kind of large sites that certainly provided operating margin for us to be able to scale with, so that that helped us. And the fact that we're a technology business as well means we generate licensing revenue through platform sales. And that certainly helps us not only kind of offset our own costs of technology, so certainly brings them down to basically negative, 
um, certainly below zero, but it also allows us to accelerate our investment in the technology itself, which of course then provides this continuous um, competitive advantage for us. The reason I initiated this interview today is because of your most recent launch, the Trillium at Queen's Park. Another outlet's layoff situation became an opportunity for you, which us media workers love to hear. Do you want to talk about how that came about? <laughs> sure. So it was in January that that our team, Village, had decided that we wanted to put uh, a reporter at Queen's Park, knowing we had 21 cities in Ontario that we operated in. We felt that having someone there that could you know, keep an eye out for news that was important to those communities, work alongside our local editors would be of, of benefit. And so we put a, a job posting up. Um, we got a number of applicants over the period of about a month. We hadn't found kind of the perfect fit yet. And then, of course, the, the whole situation with QP briefing uh, kind of exploded unexpectedly. And, you know, I was watching it closely on Twitter. I didn't know the team at all. I never met any of them before or talked to them. But, uh, you know, quickly reached out just through a message on Twitter uh, to Jessica, you know, chatted with her, you know, chatted with some of the other reporters and, and quickly realized that, you know, not only was it they were a great team, they were professionals. We certainly reviewed their work and were, were, were very impressed by it. But they were so respectful and, and such a tight knit group that, you know, we just <laughs> this is the nice thing about being kind of a small company that can move quickly, we just decided to, to go for it, you know, and, and make offers to all five of them uh, within pretty much a week uh, of, of, of that situation happening. And uh, so here we are. The Trillium was born. Queen's Park seems like a bit of a crowded space with the proliferation of independent outlets who are covering Ontario politics right now. Can you talk about the considerations that you take into account when you decide to launch a new publication? Yeah, this one's a bit of a different story. I mean, when we launch a, a, a regular community site, oftentimes we're looking for, well, we're looking at a number of things. So we're looking at um, the size of the community. So Village typically operates in the cities anywhere from, say, 10,000 to historically about 125,000 people, although obviously Burlington is a, is a larger launch for us. So first thing we look at is kind of the, the population size. We look at proximity to other markets that we have. And then we look at, of course, at the competitive landscape. And in the competitive landscape, typically our you know, number one competitor would be the daily newspaper. And so we'll often look at the health of the paper. And if there's been you know, uh, layoffs in the newsroom, we'll look at their health of their digital publishing from a cadence standpoint, from a traffic and a social following standpoint. So we have a whole bunch of metrics we kind of layer onto a market to, to look and see. We'll oftentimes even survey a market. One of the things you, you, we've learned over the years is that some communities don't necessarily care all that much about themselves um, in the sense that they might be connected to a, a larger center nearby and, and really not they're not used to getting their news from that that smaller center. So we're, we're thoughtful of that as well. So there's kind of this whole set of criteria uh, as well as in some cases serving and competitive evaluation that, that helps us decide. There's also moments in time. And, and so moments in time would explain the Trillium situation. Um, it would explain situations like Guelph, for example, um, where the daily newspaper was closed, Aurelia, where the same thing happened. And, and those have been tremendously strong market launches for us because of that situation. There, you know, so where you have a, 
a behavior, a news habit. You have, you know, trusted local journalists and all of a sudden that paper is shut down. You know, we can step in and, and it creates a bit of a vacuum. We, we can kind of gather up that audience very, very quickly. And, and those communities tend to perform really, really well for us. I think in some ways of the digital monetization space as the Wild West. And you historically have been pretty vocal about not being a fan of Bill C-18, the Online News Act. You actually like that referral traffic from Google and Facebook, and you're a part of Google News Showcase, or at least some of your publications are. What are your thoughts about that legislation in its current form and the government's approach to digital policy in general? That's really long. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about there. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm fairly outspoken that I'm not a big fan of C18. And I think that the main reason I'm not a fan of C18 is that I think it, it started based on, I would say, things that aren't factual. I'm trying to politely say it. It started on the premise that the industry said, you know, Google and Facebook are stealing our content, you know, and, and giving us nothing back, basically, was, was the, the notion. And we always said, well, wait a minute, you know, they're not stealing our content. We, we happily, <laughs> willingly put snippets of our content in those environments because of the benefit back to us, which, you know, especially in those days was greater than 50% of our traffic between those two platforms. And, and so there was this real, you know, suppression of that kind of fact from the industry in the early stages of kind of um, the, the lobbying efforts for, for C18. And, and we just you know, really never believed in that track. And I think a lot of that is because the, the, the lens that we look at the situation through is, is not the lens of a, a legacy publisher that's been disrupted by, and I won't even say Google and Facebook because I, I think that's unfair, disrupted by the internet in general. Google and Facebook are certainly part of that, but, but it goes well beyond that. You know, instead we look at through the lens of a company that started within the last 10 years that started where Google and Facebook existed. And, and I would say in some cases have taken advantage of those platforms. You know, we, we've used them to build up our audiences, to launch new markets, to sustain our traffic, et cetera. And that's, of course, how we monetize the business. So when I when I look at, you know, kind of the approach from the industry and in creating C18, my big worry was, well, wait a minute. You know, there is another side of the story, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the platforms give us a lot, and, and, and we might put that at risk. And arguably, I would say we have put that at risk, and sp specifically with Facebook, for example, who has clearly signaled a lessened interest in news. Um, we certainly see it not just through our own metrics, but through the metrics of other publishers, a constant decline in Facebook referral traffic, as they've obviously tuned their algorithms to, to show less and less news and, and push less and less links out. That comes at a huge cost to us. I mean, it's traffic, right? It's audience. Google, as you know, um, has recently run a test of, with, I think, 4% of Canadians. And you know, any risk to performance of search or Google News, et cetera, is also massive risk to the, the business overall. So, so for that, you know, we're not big fans. I know when, you know, when it was kind of a joke when uh, they, they approached us for the, the showcase license or when Facebook approaches for the news content licensing, my message was, well, I don't want any money from you. I just don't want you to mess with, <laughs> with our traffic. Like, we're, you don't have to pay us. You know, you, you give us all this for free. Why would you pay us for it as well? But by the way, you know, if we take your money, please don't, please don't change anything. Please don't change your algorithms. Please don't detune news. Do, do I think that the industry needs support? Do I think journalism needs support? Sure. Do I think that 
Google and Facebook in particular, for example, uh, have, have, have drawn a significant amount of dollars out of the advertising ecosystem in Canada. And that money used to make its way to, towards funding journalism. Do I feel that they should have to contribute in some way as good corporate citizens of Canada? I, I can get on board with that for sure. If there was a bill that basically said something along those lines, whether it be a, a, a tax or, or a a fund that would be created that would support journalism uh, across the country. I, I, I could get on board with that. I'm just not a big fan of how C18 has, has come to be. Local ad sales are really the basis of your business model. Correct. Why is that working for you and not working for a lot of other media companies? Well, as I said earlier, it's hard, right? And so, so we've been doing this for almost 10 years and it's still hard. You know, we're profitable, but, but our margins aren't anywhere near what a, a, a daily newspaper margin was in its prime, for example. And, and so when you look at the local news bucket, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the other parts of the, whether it be the newspapers or other parts of legacy media, when it comes to digital, especially with local, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues, right? And we've seen this with our partners. You know, we've seen this with other publishers. You know, first of all, it's attention, focus, right? Our sales teams are 100% focused on selling our own product on our own network. Other media companies are selling print or radio or TV. Uh, they're selling off-network digital, et cetera. So, so first of all, we're very focused on that. We also have a very complex, I shouldn't say complex, a, a very uh, extensive local product mix. And so where other companies might sell display ads and a couple of other things, we probably have 10 different things or more that we sell to clients. So that could be display, it's newsletters, it's uh, sponsored content, it's video, it's business listings, it's classified listings, it's market research, it's uh, special um, native banner formats, et cetera. We have a, something called our Community Leaders Program, which is a signature sponsored journalism program, for example. So we really have this, this comprehensive product suite that's really been built for local businesses in these local communities. And again, we do just keep getting better and better at it as we go. One of your monetization approaches has been partnerships, including Rogers Sports and Media, which recently decided not to renew. Can you talk about how that impacts the business and what you've learned over the last decade with the ongoing changes in the delivery landscape and the digital business model in general and monetization? So we have over 50 different sites licensed on our platform. We have different types of revenue models. Some of them are direct fee based. Some of them are percentage revenue based. Some of them have fees and then service charges on top of that, depending on the level of service we provide. You know, so the, the Rogers contract um, was was three sites of the 50 plus some sites that we have. So the, the impact on Village is, is fairly minimal. So I'll start with that. As I said earlier, the license business for us was really kind of designed not for it to be kind of just this whole giant standalone business, but one created for kind of two purposes. One was to offset our own costs of technology so that we could have a, a good, capable in-house development team. And then, of course, grow that team and then accelerate the, the, the technology itself, which is what we've done. Um, so there's been a, a big advantage to us in, in doing that. And, and so, it just of course, it helps the rest of the business having that in place from, from, from every sense of generating audience through new technology, 
offsetting costs. You know, COVID was was a, obviously an incredibly different time. And and when we entered COVID, you know, we thought we were going to lose the business. We thought, you know, I remember the first day that one of our large local car dealership groups called to cancel their advertising. And, and of course, a lot of restaurants and events and stuff had already canceled. But then when the larger clients started to think about canceling, it was, it was a panic. Um, and, and we really, you know, did a very quick turnaround and, and created new products to support that. And, and then in fact, the business took off, but, but also the audience took off with it. And so when we were looking at the models of our business and how we grow sites and whatnot, they, they all of a sudden just got amplified. And so we were able to launch markets quickly, build up audiences fast, build up newsletters quickly. And in hindsight, I mean, I think a lot of people have seen this, but certainly that's come off, right? So it's, it's now more difficult in a post-COVID world. Um, sustaining even traffic today is, is more difficult than it used to be, never mind rapidly building new audiences. I think if you take that coupled with you know, what, what certainly has been reported on as uh, some element of general news fatigue or even news avoidance, it certainly uh, creates issues. And then I think, of course, the decline in particular of Facebook from, a, from a, what, what historically was a, a significant generator of traffic also impacts the business. These are the things that we have to deal with all the time. And respond to you know it's it's trying to figure out well you know what's the next best channel right uh, so we invest in push we invest in newsletters we switch our investment in Facebook to build more uh, newsletter subscribers for example we build new technology which for example some of which will roll out in the next month or two which will be much more active notification based uh, systems uh, we roll out progressive web apps and put them in Android stores to, to kind of keep up with and, and continue to build that audience. So I think there's lots of learnings in particular over the last couple of years about, you know, how we have to keep adapting to this environment. But I, I think the other thing that we've learned certainly is that being involved in the communities that we're in is, is a game changer for us. And, and, you know, that also became very apparent during COVID is that, you know, we can't, you know, we, we get actively involved in, in being supportive members of the community, whether that's working with local nonprofits and charities and events, et cetera, uh, through in-kind sponsorships, cash sponsorships. Um, that's really also become a, a, a big uh, part of the business for us now and, and, and a real great learning to the point that we spun up a whole team. It's called our CARES team, and that's what they do. They, they think about, you know, how we can care about our communities and, and give back beyond course, the, uh, the journalism that we're doing. You alluded to some projects in the pipeline, and I know one of those is working with generative AI. I feel yeah. like that's a good good starting point to talk about what's in development since it's such a hot button topic right now. It is scary. I, I, I half jokingly said a few weeks back that half of my free time was spent learning about AI and the other half of my time was spent thinking about how I could sustain myself off grid because of the implications of this technology beyond the news industry, of course. Um, so I'm a little fearful of it. We've spent a lot of time the last couple of months really thinking about it. We've actually already built technology. Um, we haven't launched it live yet um, because we're very thoughtful about the responsible use of it. And so today we have tools, for example, that can help us write headlines, that can help summarize an article into like a snippet. We have tools that will help write search engine optimized headlines, write social optimized headlines, 
draw out any relevant cla classifications through a tagging intelligence. We have a system now that will scan an article and find any entities, which would be people, places, or businesses, and then search our historical archives for related content. All of that stuff to me is, is just assists, right? There, it, it, it's helping our reporters do their jobs more efficiently, but it's not replacing their jobs. Now, the scary part is when you get into the generative component of this, and, and we have tested this out where, you know, feeding it small bits of information and having it produce articles in a news format or rewriting media releases, you know, these things we're testing right now. And, and we haven't put out anything publicly. I think we did one lifestyle article that we disclosed, but we haven't, our news teams are not using this kind of technology right now um, because we're, we're really thoughtful about that, the, the responsible use, the disclosure, um, so transparency with our, our readership and ensuring that humans still fully review this work is, is in our opinion, extremely critical. But um, yeah, we're, we're moving really, really quickly on that. The, the next scary part of that is actually taking the generative tools to the next level where you're actually training them on the historical writings of either the company or even an individual reporter and having those engines write articles in that style. That's something else we're exploring right now. Also very, very scary in some ways. You know, my view is that AI for village will be a tool, uh, an assistive tool. It will not replace jobs. It will allow reporters to do hopefully better work, save time doing on doing menial things that they could otherwise be reporting on original content instead. And I think that's where all the value, of course, comes from. What scares me for the world and, and the industry is that I think if you have communities that are in news deserts, for example, that there, in fact, I'm shocked that we haven't seen more of it already, but there will be bad actors that use this technology to flood markets with what seems to be news that may sometimes be accurate and sometimes it may not because it likely won't be human validated. It won't be written by someone in the market. It won't be written by someone that knows the market. That's scary. It also might be written with a very specific political bias, for example. And, and I think in, in communities where you don't have a healthy online news source, no one knows who to trust. And so if you see something that looks local and looks relevant, and it appears to be coming from what seems to be a legitimate organization in absence of having a legitimate organization, I think we have real trouble to worry about. And I don't know what the solution is to that because I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's easy to, for even Google, for example, to detect words written by an AI um, because they're all different, you know, and they can be tuned and crafted and, you know, they're going to get better and better and better. Um, so, I, you know, I really kind of struggle to figure out how the industry and how the world's going to adapt to this, never mind just in news, but in a whole bunch of other sectors like education, for example. It's a really exciting technology, I think, if used responsibly and for the right reasons, and, and we're excited about it for, for that. Yeah, I'm already seeing a, a real proliferation with international lifestyle content, and I can spot it a mile away, but I see particularly the entertainment pieces showing back up on TikTok. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I think a trained editor can spot you know, the iterative nature of that type of writing right away. But I wonder about the general public. Well, and the other scary part is that it's only going to get way better. Um, you know, what we see today might be five times better a year from now. Um, at some point, it might be really difficult even for a trained person to, to understand the difference. We will see. I mean, it, it, again, in our, in our business, 
the value still comes down to being on the ground, knowing the community, you know, doing one-on-one interviews, being at city council meeting, being at a school board meeting, you know, those are the things that, that these systems cannot do, but they, they can assist. So that, that's one project that we're working on. And we have a couple of others. We'll be releasing a whole other set of local business tools. So the kind of onboarding process for businesses to work inside our environment, to have their own dashboard, to be able to look at their stats, to be able to manage their profiles, their staff, to um, be able to publish listings is all going to roll out. And that's new and exciting. And then we're on to what we're calling our spaces project, which is, in my opinion, the most exciting thing that we are working on and probably the biggest thing that we'll ever do. And that's really our effort to try to win back some of the engagement that we've lost to social platforms like Facebook, uh, for example. So we've got a, it's a, it's a big effort for us this year and uh, hopefully we'll have that at least in part released by fall. Is there a thought that you want to close on or anything else you want to touch on, Jeff? I mean, I guess I would just say there, there's a lot of other great success stories in digital publishing in Canada in particular. I mean, certainly around the world, but there's some great stories out there. And I think these new models, like, as I said, they're, they're not easy, but they take, they take time. But, you know, we, we now employ about 90 journalists. You know, five years ago, that was maybe 15. You know, others are, are growing as well. And I think... As, as these models have time to, to thrive, then you, you're going to see more and more positive news coming out in the industry in the coming years. Thank you for joining us, Jeff. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.